So I have the distinct pleasure of introducing this morning's keynote. Bill Heller is known to low teachers across New York State and the country as a passionate practitioner of foreign language education. He has been a Spanish teacher for more than 30 years. While he retired from the Perry School District in 2011, he continues to work with students at the university level. He is a visionary who calls it as he sees it. Nicefelt is glad to have him as a friend. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Bill Heller. Thank you, Bill, for that kind introduction. It really was very, very generous. Um, karma always has, ends up exacting its cost. And the irony of me being invited to give a keynote speech is not lost on my friends who have heard me rail about the uselessness and irrelevance of keynote speeches. <laughs> but I thank Mer President Mary Holmes, Conference Chair Bill Anderson, and his wonderful committee for inviting me to share some thoughts with you today. I will start with a disclaimer that the thoughts I share with you today are my own and do not necessarily represent positions of Nicefeld or the conference committee or anyone else in particular. Um, so well, will that do that for the legal work, John? Uh, that, no, they didn't make me do that. It's uh, not my intent to offend anybody, but I once learned that the measure of an effective speech is that it comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. <laughs> Now, I don't know, um, I don't even, even know, Ken, if you've seen this yet, but there was a new memo that came out yesterday on the state website about four o'clock in last afternoon, and it's very important, so I thought I'd read it to you today. Um, Dear superintendents, principals, and teachers in the field, as you know, the state education department is implementing new regulations to require student achievement data to be part of our teachers' APPR, as if we didn't know. In order to implement this mandate, we have developed an additional new measure for us to fairly and objectively rate teachers based on student performance. This new measure of teacher efficacy will be called the Teaching and Testing Audit. Using test scores from the past five years, a new psychometric formula allows us to calculate a TATA score for every teacher in every content area. Unfortunately, in-depth trending analysis has revealed that over the past few years, statewide, our tatas have been sagging. <laughs> Therefore, we will need to implement some changes this year in order to lift our drooping tatas. In this age of accountability, Commissioner King has said we must no longer accept any excuse for not having robust tatas. We can no longer use age, gender, or even experience as an excuse for not making every effort to lift them. Our tech support department here at State Ed is even investigating technological enhancements to help raise our tatas. While short-term measures can be used to provide our tatas with a temporary bounce, we must also carefully explore more long-term solutions, which will make building outstanding tatas the primary focus of our academic culture. Of course, in order to conform to New York State sunshine laws, 
All teachers must have their tatas on public display during normal working hours and parent conferences. I linger with that image a bit. Um, I'm confident that by working together and enacting best practices, soon our tatas will be the envy of teachers and administrators across the country. Sincerely, Dr. Hugh G. Cups. So there. <laughs> Who said the kid? You guys are producing good stuff at Seder all the time, aren't you? Francisco de Goya had witnessed the horrors of Napoleon's invasion of Spain and the horrors that that, that, those, uh, that invasion had inflicted on the people. Goya expressed his anger and indignation, combined with the dark pessimism that had come upon him as he went deaf, by documenting these atrocities and absurdities, depicting the raw and grotesque violence of his era through a series of engravings, grabados, which served as social commentary in a similar way to today's political cartoons. One of his best-known gravados is called The Sleep of Reason Produces Monsters. I'm sure you can relate to the fellow sleeping at his desk. <laughs> we see the man who represents rational discourse, just leadership, and reasoned decision-making at his writing desk sleeping. He sleeps, and as he sleeps, out of the shadows emerge fierce monsters. Reason's current ambient-induced slumber in our own time has produced a true nightmare called education reform that seems to be driven more by a bandwagon and bumper sticker mentality than by an understanding of learners and the learning process. Each new wave comes prepackaged in one-size-fits-all formats with highly paid outside consultants claims of being research-based and rooted in best practice. They come as shining solutions in search of a problem. Touted by a new breed of education entrepreneur, long on avarice and short on meaningful teaching experience. The corporate press, fighting for ratings, readership, and advertising dollars, try to paint education reform as some kind of WWE cage fight pitting those lazy teachers and their evil unions against the self-righteous ranting of corporate moguls like Bill Gates and classroom quitters like Michelle Reed and Wendy Cobb. <laughs> the first monster that the current sleep of reason has unleashed is ignorance, sometimes willful on the part of those who are in a position of power with the resources to act. This ignorance portrays itself in many ways, usually involving accepting various myths in place of legitimate evidence. One of the biggest is the prevailing notion that homogeneity is the same as equity. It was a busy morning in Dr. Duncan's office. Patients of all ages filled his waiting room as he hurried in after completing his rounds at a local hospital. The first of today's patients would present him with the most unpleasant task. John Armstrong was a burly iron worker 
several years from retirement eligibility. Today, John would find out that he had a very pernicious brain tumor. Dr. Duncan had to break the news to John, and since the tumor was inoperable, Dr. Duncan would be prescribing for him a very aggressive regimen of chemotherapy and radiation. Dr. Duncan reassured John that he would be getting the best treatment that modern medicine had to offer. John took the news well, left with optimism, and despite his fear, confident in Dr. Duncan's skill and expertise. Dr. Duncan's next patient for the day would be less challenging. Tanya Green, a 32-year-old mother of two, was being plagued with a recurring cough for a month. Dr. Duncan had, re had received the results of the battery of diagnostic tests he ordered. Tanya just had a case of serious bronchitis. Dr. Duncan decided that he would prescribe an aggressive regimen of chemotherapy and radiation. In Dr. Duncan's opinion, all diseases were very, very, very bad and required equally aggressive treatment. Miss Green listened intently to Dr. Duncan's prescription and politely told Dr. Duncan that she would like to seek a second opinion before beginning his recommended course of treatment. The third patient in Dr. Duncan's office that day was Dave Johnson. Dave was a strapping, healthy 24-year-old who'd come for a physical exam required for his new job as a delivery man for UPS. Dave was an all-American miler in college and had begun to train for triathlons in his free time. His test results were ideal. Dr. Duncan congratulated Dave on his new job and his fine physical condition. Then he handed Dave a prescription to begin an aggressive regimen of chemotherapy and radiation. <laughs> Dr. Duncan explained that while Dave was enjoying good health and had adopted admirable personal habits like all of his patients, Dave would one day get sick. <laughs> and so he may as well begin his treatment right away. Dave grabbed the physical forms and used his athletic prowess to flee the doctor's office at what may have been a world record pace. Nowhere would you expect to see a race where everybody who lined up at the same starting line all got to the finish line at exactly the same time. The race our students run doesn't even line them all up at the same starting line. Some start the race 10 yards ahead of the starting line and others 50 yards behind when the starter's pistol, fire, starter's pistol fires. But it is belief in these myths which leads to the type of magical thinking that issues top-down edicts with little concrete guidance and even fewer resources to achieve them. Ignoring these fundamental inequities and dismissing them as excuses will render any proposed remedies as mere band-aids on symptoms rather than meaningful solutions to the problems which undermine academic success and achievement. Aside from ignorance, the second monster produced during this time of the sleep of reason has been the monster of scarcity. Since entering the profession in 1978, money has always been tight. Every year has been a lean year for education. Even during the big boom years of Reagan and Clinton, teachers always got the message, money is tight. No administrator ever said, go crazy, order whatever you need. <laughs> Not once in 34 years. However, I was always amazed at how money was always found when the powers that be thought something was important. After Columbine, we suddenly had cameras, electronic locks, photo IDs, and a buzzing system, which appeared overnight. My classroom, on the other hand, had the same ugly door since the school was built. 
but we have state-of-the-art surveillance system. We have an athletic field with an all-weather track and artificial turf so our student-athletes can compete with our neighbors. But the internet capacity plugs up when my students try to upload their recordings to the cloud. I could go on and on, and I wager so could you. I posit that there is no scarcity, but rather a problem with priorities, which causes unfocused and unproductive allocation of the extant resources. However, there is the trap. We get caught up in the mentality of scarcity, and if we let scarcity limit our vision, stunt our creativity, and lower our aspirations, then the scarcity mentality has won. The third monster is fear. And while the fear that haunts teachers today is a product of phony fabrication, the threats that they face are real. Forcing artificial competitions among teachers in a cooperative venture like education has no positive outcome. Forbidding teachers from grading their students' tests, further reducing valuable class time by mandating more days consumed with testing, ranking teachers by a non-transparent evaluation formula, and wasting endless time with paperwork and documentation only serve to produce anxiety and fear in teachers. Children, being pretty perceptive little creatures, pick up on that fear and can't help but be affected by it. It has become clear that the motive has little to do with improving student achievement and everything to do with doing an end round, end run, end run around union contractual protections, creating job insecurity to coerce blind obedience and compliance, and to reduce the professional status of teachers in order to justify low salaries and reduce benefits. When humans live in constant fear, they make poor choices, focused on short-term coping and survival. We, we stop thinking big, and we take our eyes off the big picture as we hunker down in silence in our bunkers of self-preservation at the cost of bold thinking, initiative, independence, risk-taking, and assertive advocacy for our students and for our discipline. This toxic combination of ignorance, scarcity, and fear is causing teachers and principals across the state to leave the profession. And it's not those mythological bad teachers that are leaving either. It's the good ones, the creative ones, the gifted ones, the inspiring ones, who are making the agonizing choice to leave the profession they once loved. And yet, even though reason for this day appears to be comatose and perhaps even on life support, those of us gathered here continue to dream during the sleep of reason. We are a stubborn lot, and under no circumstances will we allow ourselves to be robbed of our teacher's soul. Our first weapon against the three-headed monster of scarcity, ignorance, and fear is our very own legacy. We must remember that we stand on the shoulders of giants. For those of you young in the profession, you need to know that this organization has been around for a very long time, and that the leaders in it have produced, the leaders it has produced have left a lasting legacy of promoting language learning for all. New York was one of the first to have a language mandate for all students, going back now 25 years. 
Under the guidance of the most incredible cadre of leaders at State Ed in, and in Nicefeld, the low teachers of New York shepherded radical reform in language teaching with high quality aligned assessments, including an individually administered oral examination for every student. These were revolutionary ideas brought to life by bold and visionary leaders and not bureaucratic flunkies. Some names may not be familiar to young teachers like Dolores Mita, Alain Blanchet, Paul Dammer. Other names we have attached to awards like Anthony Papalia and Bob Ludwig. Harriet Barnett, who we met last night, has been New York an actual flesh queen for many years now. Bob Ponterio and Jean Lalou, who led the nation into the still thriving virtual faculty room we know as FL Teach, and whose example made us all consider ways to make our teaching better through technology. These are just a few of the giants on whose shoulders we stand. And there are also giants in each of our lives who inspired us to this wonderful profession. For me, I think of Joanne Dickinson, who nagged every teacher in our BOCES district until we joined Nicefeld. After which, Nicefeld sold itself. Dr. Pat Siever, who mentored me to be able to one day succeed her as methods instructor at Geneseo. If you look around you at this conference, conference you'll meet more of today's giants. Al Martino, John Carlino, Abby Guillet, Ken Hughes, Joanne O'Toole, Ginny Levine, and our, all of our nice felt officers, and so many more. To you who are attending your first NYSEFELD, these wonderful leaders who began their journey, these wonderful leaders began their journey where you sit now, and you too can add to and carry on our rich low legacy. Our second defense against the monsters of reform is our students. We must remember that effective, long-lasting, life-changing teaching only happens as a relationship between one teacher and one student, accomplished up to 150 at a time. Know that what you do today to be a champion for your students will be remembered and esteemed for the rest of that student's life. As low teachers, we often have students for more than one year and can notice and affirm subtle growth and changes in the student's temperament or behavior. They will confide in you. They will trust you above most of your colleagues because in you they know they will find acceptance. Each of us in this room can tell stories of students whom we have directly influenced for good. When you get old like me, you even know the joy of having them come back and relate specific moments or words that they carry with them to this day. As teachers, we are too humble to tell these stories, but treasure these relationships in our heart. They give us strength and courage to persevere through these dark days. Never take your eyes off what your students need from you, and never cease being a champion for what your students really need from the adults in their lives. Our students will be your strength during this sleep of reason. Finally, our ultimate shield against defeat is the gift we share. We are language teachers. We are the bearers and sharers of two great treasures, language and culture. As low teachers, we are in the business of communication, and the domain of our discipline is infinite.
any relevant topic to our students or to our society that is an appropriate topic about which to listen, read, speak, and write. We are poised to help students make sense of their world in ways that no other teachers in our school can be. As bearers and sharers of language and culture, we also share the tools to shape the kind of world that we know is possible and for which we continue to hope. And so, what can we do as dreamers during the sleep of reason to bring about the dawn of awakening? First, we must engage in areas normally beyond most of our comfort zones into the realm of the political. For too long, we've been able to leave the dirty business of politics to the regions, the mucky mucks that stayed at, and the union folks. They've all failed us. The fact that every NYSED official, school superintendent, and school board president isn't storming Albany, carrying pitchforks and torches, disgusts me. Their silence is complicity, as teachers and their students are bullied, abused, and victimized by the folly that is raised to the top and APPR. Meanwhile, the corporate harvesters, who wish to claim a greater share of the meager public investment in education, have the time and resources to hawk their shiny solutions to non-existent problems. We must get our hands dirty and become politically informed and militantly engaged. Secondly, we must create solidarity within our departments and within our profession. While we may have our differences in how we approach our craft, we must focus on the end goals, the big picture that we share in common. Our students will not be well served if colleagues are allowed to undermine one another's efforts by word or action, and we cannot tolerate it. As teachers, we are called to model the type of critical thinking and cooperative productivity that we try to foster in our students. We owe it to our students to hammer out goals and benchmarks that all will support and let nothing or no one divide our department and impede alignment and articulation. We need to stand up together, united by the common goal of second language proficiency for all learners. Third, we must continue to advocate for our students and our profession. There are many ideas and materials available to help us right on the NYSFL website. They're already there for us. Visibility is the key. And hopefully the burden of additional paperwork and meetings that APPR has promulgated will not deter us from providing rich opportunities to represent in our community through clubs, club activities, community service projects, trips, and fairs. Make your department a golden apple department with 100% membership in NYSFL. Support your regional conferences and take a moment to express your gratitude to our loyal vendors who so generously help finance our annual conference. Finally, our best ambassadors and advocates will be our students if our programs produce confident and proficient speakers. We can help our students understand that they don't have to have native proficiency 
in order for them to claim their own language proficiency as a marketable skill. Proficiency is a continuum, not a destination. Promoting an understanding of language proficiency and advocating for ways for our students to document their proficiency for college and career success has become a focus of my own teaching and advocacy. I tend to be a bit of a radical here, but I, but I think New York got it right back in 1986. There only need to be two standards that we can hope to effectively measure, communication and culture. Anything beyond that only dilutes our efforts and muddies our mission. The focal point of our instruction should center on allowing each student to leave high school with a certification of their oral language proficiency with the goal of maybe intermediate mid for students who started with grade seven and go through to grade 12, and intermediate high for students in articulated K through 12 programs. So it will be our activism, our solidarity, our advocacy, and the concrete achievements of our students that will bring an end to our long night of the sleep of reason and ward off the monsters that have emerged in the darkness. To close with you, I must share with you that I went through a bit of a dark night of the soul last year about continuing as a methods teacher and as a student teacher college supervisor. When I was entering college, when I was entering college to be a teacher, many tried to dissuade me. I was going to be the valedictorian in my graduating class at Night Refield. Many of my teachers and counselors thought that I could and should do better with my career. I can think of no better choice that I could have made. And I've encouraged many others to consider teaching as a career since that time. But since last, this last spring, seeing the impending chaos that RT raised the top and APPR was going to cause, I really had to search my soul to see if in good faith I could continue to recommend teaching as a profession. I came to the conclusion that just as the chaos of Goya's time eventually righted itself, that the present challenges in our profession will eventually resolve themselves, that the perpetrators and their motives will be exposed, that the ridiculous, time-consuming, and ineffective unfunded mandates will implode, and that the sleep of reason will end. I continue to be optimistic for the future of our calling as bearers and sharers of language and culture, I encourage you today to persevere with courage and with passion. Thank you very much.